Nice. Well, uh, Christian, thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, our LAMP interview with Christian Smith. He's just uh, traveled to the States for uh, a couple shows and tour. And we just had the pleasure of seeing him last night and play an awesome show. That was great. Um, but before we go into any of those details, I want to take a step back and go into your history and learn a little bit about you for, so our audience can understand kind of who you are. Um, so originally you're from Sweden, um, but you spent a lot of time in your childhood in Frankfurt, yes. if I'm correct. Yes. And then, you know, uh, I heard that your, your dad was working as a pilot in Frankfurt. Is that correct? Yes. yes. What kind of pilot was he? Uh, well, um, yeah, I spent most of my childhood, my teens, most of my teens in, in Frankfurt. My father was a pilot for, for a commercial airline, Lufthansa, okay. which is the, the biggest German carrier. And um, yeah, I must say I really enjoyed growing up that part of my life in Germany because um, Frankfurt at that time had a really thriving scene musically. And I don't know if you know, but Sven Fates, mm-hmm. Sven Bath, yeah. he is from Frankfurt. And when I used to go clubbing every weekend, this was long before DJs were international DJs. Yeah. So I saw him basically every week for a couple of years because he was a resident DJ at mm-hmm. one of the clubs. So, so you know, he really gave me lots of foundation. And, um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed uh, living there until I moved to the States. I finished high school in New Jersey. Okay. And um, after I finished... High school, I moved to Washington, D.C. for mm-hmm. four years, where I went to university. Then, then I lived in New York for six years, which I really enjoyed because this was right when my career took off. And um, I used to play a lot all across North America, at the same time playing in Europe as well. And then after a couple of years, I moved from, where did I? Then I moved to Brazil, no, not Brazil. Then I moved to Barcelona, Spain, mm-hmm. stayed there for four years. I moved back to Europe. Because most at the end of the day, even though I played a lot in America, most of my gigs were in Europe. The scene in Europe is just it's just bigger. Right. So so I moved back to Europe, stayed there for a couple of years, and then I um, moved to Brazil. I'm I'm definitely why do you why do you move to Brazil? I'm yeah, curious no, I'm, about that. I'm definitely one of those guys that um, at least I used to be very adventurous. Okay. And I really took advantage of the fact that an international DJ can live wherever he or she wants as long as you're close to an international airport. Mm -hmm. And I really took advantage of that, and I'm happy I did. Um, So I lived in Brazil for a couple of years. I have a Brazilian wife, but um, now I live in Spain again, in Mallorca on an island. But I'm I'm kind of settled there for now. I, yeah. I don't think I'm going to move anywhere anywhere else anywhere anytime soon because I just really enjoy life on an island. Because um, why why my why Mallorca? Out of curiosity. Uh, a good question. My parents used to have an apartment there, a summer apartment, and I spent many of my summers in Mallorca. But I never thought that this would be a place to live full time. But um, I was going to move to Berlin with my wife uh, a couple of years ago, five years ago. And then we spent a couple of weeks in Mallorca before moving to Berlin. But then we liked Mallorca so much, so we just decided, hey, let's just stay here. Because I thought I should move to Berlin because I have a lot of friends there and it's good for business, you know, the techno industry. But at the end of the day, I'm already established and, and I, my label runs well. And um, so I don't really need to hang out in clubs uh, to do politics and get gigs. Yeah. So so for me, again, it doesn't matter where I live. Right. So, so now I really enjoy living on an island because on weekends I'm always traveling. And when I come home, I can, you know, be with my family, go to the pool or the beach mm-hmm. and, you know, and good cheap wine as well. 
That's awesome. <laughs> well, let's t let's talk about sort of how you got to the point of being established. You obviously had to put the work in uh, at the outset. So you're in New York, you're in DC. It clears something up for me. What, when and where exactly did you start Tronic? I started Tronic while I was at, at university. I was a. Uh, what were you studying? I did uh, my undergrad degree was in um, international business and finance, and um, that was in Washington D.C. And in my sophomore year, I started Tronic because I, I had released a, a few records at that point, but I wanted to to do a label where where I could release music that both techno and house DJs could play. Mm -hmm. This was long before the term tech house existed. Uh, I called it housey techno back then. <laughs> and, um, and the distributors, the distributors said, yeah, this is not going to work because it's, it's too soft for the techno guys okay. and it's too hard for the house guys. Yeah. So, so this you had a steep hill to climb. Well, uh, well this is what they said. Right. But, then, um, but the, at the end of the day, my distributor liked my, my sales pitch and they, they took my label, they took Tronic on and, um, it flourished. It did really well, really fast. And, um, uh, then, you know, I've had the label for 20 years. I, I've had several ups and downs. Yeah. Uh, the first 10 years, I, I didn't really run the label professionally. Total, total amateur, actually. <laughs> but I managed to have a couple of big hits. Mm -hmm. So and when you have big hits, uh, you, you get a lot of visibility. Right. Like, um, for example, I, I took my I moved after I finished my degree in, in Washington, D.C. I moved to Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, to go back to university to get a master's degree in economics. And while I did that, I produced a couple of records that Carl Cox and a couple of other DJs were playing. And within six months, I went from nothing to having a full schedule of gigs all over the world. Wow. It happened really fast for me. And it was really weird because I went from being a student to suddenly making you know a lot of money yeah and um how did you balance that I mean were you still studying when this whole thing sort of kicked off I was still studying and I finished all of my classes but for my master's degree uh -huh. but I didn't do the dissertation at the end you need to write this big paper sure. you know like uh, 200 pages that takes like six months of your life to do uh, I didn't do it and okay. so I never graduated with my master's degree. My parents are really upset. <laughs> Do they still hold that against you? No, no, they, they don't. <laughs> but at first, they're really upset because they flipped the bill. They, they, pay, uh, they paid for my master's oh, degree. Man. But um, at the end of the day, as, as soon as I stopped asking for money, uh -huh. everything was fine. Yeah. You know? so. Yeah. Did, so it's interesting because it seems like you had sort of like this balance between what you really wanted to do in life with education. Was that always sort of ingrained in you or did you sort of do one as as a prerequisite to the other? Well, in the 90s, there really weren't, in the early 90s when I was studying, there really weren't many international DJs and that was not really a, um, an occupation, right. you know, a viable occupation. So I never thought that, I, I always loved DJing, and, but I never thought that I could make this my life. So I, so I, figured, so I said, okay, I'm going to study, um, I'm going to study as much as I can and, and, and get a good education so I can get a good job. Right. But thank, I also was an investment banker for a year and a half, wow. but I hated it. I was working my ass yeah. off, you know, I was, was working. This in New York? This was actually in Washington, D.C., oh, okay. okay. at a small institutional investment bank. And I was, you know, I was working like 70 to 90 hours a week. Uh -huh. It's not a healthy lifestyle, yeah. and, I, and I don't like the people, and, and I'm just really grateful that, I, that my music career took off. And this was like, I don't know, like 20... 22 years ago right. and I haven't looked back I mean like sometimes this job DJing 
and uh, you know having a music career a radio show label all the stuff can get overwhelming because mm-hmm. I travel so much but overall I really can't complain I do what I love for a living yeah and um, yeah it's great that's awesome so I want to kind of frame this up so you you get to New York it's like the I guess the end of the the 80s, early 90s, the scene... And no, the, in, in New York, I moved yeah, to New York get, after I finished university, okay, uh, okay. After, after my undergrad. Okay, so, so like this mid-90s? Was, uh, late 90s. Late 90s. So I guess New York had already started developing its kind of identity, getting, you know, the Chicago and Detroit influences and building its own character. Like, what were your first impressions of the city as far as music? Did you have an expectation when you went there? Yeah, I mean, I, I was obviously educated with regards to where music came from. You know, like, I in the in the mid-'80s, I loved Chicago House, but uh, but also New York had a thriving house scene as well. Mm-hmm. So when I moved there in the late-'90s, I, I was super excited, first of all, because New York is a great city, especially for, you know, a, a kid in his early-'20s uh, who's making a reasonably good money mm-hmm. and uh, yeah so I just had a blast I mean like I lived there for a couple of years and I DJed on weekends everywhere and um, I spent all my money it was really crazy I mean like I was really how should I say unresponsible mm-hmm. I didn't save anything it's like I was making good money and it saved nothing <laughs> so I pissed all my money away for a couple of years and um, then when I moved to Europe I started becoming a little bit more responsible I should say and um, yeah I mean, like, I really enjoyed New York because in the 90s, uh, it was, in the 80s, New York was incredible. In the 90s, New York was still very good. They had the Limelight, uh, Twilo. They had really legendary clubs. Mm-hmm. I, um, I'm a techno guy, but I also love house music. So often, I, I, let's say I did a gig at Limelight, and then afterwards I went to another club to check out Danny Tenaglia playing after-hours disco sets. You know, it was a good place to be. Yeah. You know, now the scene in New York is, is not as strong as, as back then. But I think um, every, most of the big cities, this, uh, the scene is very cyclical. Sure. You know, sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. Yeah. And um, I hope they're going to get better soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's awesome. And, I, and thank you for sort of kind of framing this all up for us. But there's sort of one last thing. And I, I like to ask a lot of producers and DJs. It's sort of that spark, that moment where they really know that this is something they want to do. It may have happened earlier in their childhood. Was there a moment or a song that just kind of, stuck with you and thought this is where I want to be in my life not necessarily a song but I have an older brother and an older sister they're um, eight and nine years older than me when I was 10 years old they brought home mixtapes from a legendary club called Dorian Gray where Sven was a resident and and, uh, many other famous DJs so I was uh, listening to these mixtapes over and over back then this was like early electro late disco and um, stuff like Depeche Mode and I really loved those mixtapes. I was listening to them over and over, and and then that really sparked my my um, curiosity towards electronic music. Mm-hmm. And then I slowly got into DJing, very slowly. I mean, I had one turntable at first, one one tape deck, yeah. you know, and one one garbage mixer, and it very slowly it moved from step to step. And then I became a battle DJ actually. Oh, cool. So I was in the DMC uh, battle competitions. I was, you know. I was in the basement of my parents' house just practicing scratching five, six hours a day. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's like, so, but this helped me a lot later in my career as well because if you scratch so much and you beat juggling stuff, it, you, you become really confident. Mm-hmm. And, and mixing is really super easy. It's like the easiest part of, 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 of DJing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that has helped me a lot. But um, yeah, that was what those mixtapes kind of started my, my interest for sure. Okay. But there is. 
you would say that DJ was a fa- uh, DJing was sort of like the foundation, and production came later. Or were you? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I definitely started being a DJ before I became a producer. Uh-huh. The producing started um, much later. Okay. Was that a byproduct of, of doing sort of these like breaks and mashups? And yeah, things? I mean, uh, you, you become curious. It's sure. like, yeah, how is this made? And um, and then it's a, it's a natural progression to produce. I love producing. People sometimes ask me, what do you prefer, producing or, or DJing? And um, I always used to say both. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, recently I've come to the conclusion DJing is is more fun. I mean, it's fun to be in the studio making your own tracks, but if you have a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand people in front of you with their hands in the air screaming, it's, it's not many things can surpass that. Right. I mean, that, that kind of brings me to my next question. When you're thinking about a show that you have, how do you sort of frame it up as far as like a track list or a set list that you're going to put together? I normally have a couple of track lists, and uh, I, I try to make one track list with all my current tracks, all the new ones, and then I have a bunch of other ones. One, uh, for example, one track list I call Muscle Techno, <laughs> where it's just like one of the really the, the harder ones, the stomping tracks. Yeah. I have another one, uh, House Folder, House Music Folder. Mm-hmm. And I, I go in between folders when I play because no no gig is the same. Right. You know, I, 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 I really don't subscribe to that view that I play for myself. I play for the crowd. But I need to educate at the same time doing, play, doing that by playing my music and what I think works best for them. I feel like we got a bit of, maybe not an education, maybe it was a bit of nostalgia, but we heard some sort of like electro-based music last night. And I feel like sometimes, especially with DJs that have been around for so long, they tend to bubble that stuff back up again. It's like they played it when they were first starting and then... You, you know. know what, you know what, playing electro is, is to be dead honest, it's ballsy. It's a little risky <laughs> yeah. because a, a lot of people, they, you know, you have a full-on techno set and suddenly you hear an electro track, they don't know how to react. But yesterday I looked at the crowd and they're, you know, they're going for it and they're, they seem to be quite educated mm-hmm. so, so I could play whatever I wanted. Yeah. So, so I played a bit of everything. I, at the end I played some classics and like just had some fun. That's and I think that's what it's all about. I think a DJ should be part of a party. We all party together. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about sort of your production habits. Um, you've mentioned before that you love working on albums and the process behind it gets you to think outside of the box, gets you out of your comfort zone. Um, where do you start creatively when you're trying to think about a new project? It depends f- from album to album. I've done, uh, I don't know, four or five, maybe six albums. So each album had a totally different um, objective and... And like you said, yeah, I like, I, one of the main things about producing albums is, like you said, I really enjoy having the opportunity to produce tracks that people usually wouldn't expect me to make. Mm-hmm. So I can go out of my comfort out of my comfort zone. I can make ambient tracks. I can make electro tracks. I can make more housey tracks. And I really like that because I I see some artists that I know that are very successful, and they only do the same style of music all the time and they never produce albums they just release one style of music and I don't find that it's, it's good for them and all cool but for me uh, I need to challenge myself to to stay interested in sure. in, in, in the music and um, I haven't done an album uh, I'm not gonna I've done so many albums in the last couple of years so I think I'm gonna take a little break now for a few years uh-huh. and, and just do singles but um, yeah like I said I really enjoy doing them and unfortunately the 
the album concept has lost in value completely. Mm-hmm. Like albums, digital albums on Beatport, they don't sell. Right. It's like it's unfortunately that's a that's a sad fact. They don't sell. But again, I encourage a lot of artists, especially younger ones, that have done like let's say 10, 20 singles to make an album because they grow musically after that experience. And right. and I think it's it's a very good experience for, for any producer to to do such projects. That's great advice. Um, but speaking about that a little bit as far as experience, you know, you have your own label and you obviously get the opportunity to create music in your own space, but What's it like sort of working with other labels and producing with them? Do you sort of put on a different hat or is it, I already got music made and I think this would fit here? A very good question. Uh, I tend to put on a hat. Like when I want to make a music, when I'm, let's say I've, I've done some singles for drum code. When I do that, my last single for drum code was kind of a funny perspective. I, um, I wanted to have a release on drum code, but I didn't want to sound anything like the releases on drum code. Mm. So I took all of the regular things that you would expect on a drum code track out of my tracks. Mm-hmm. And um, and I sent them to Adam yeah. and he signed them on the spot. Okay. So that was really cool because wow. it goes to show that he's also very open-minded yeah. and uh, doesn't always want what you expect. Mm-hmm. So, but when I release on Tronic, I, anything goes. It's like it's my label. I I'm the boss, of course, but but yeah, I do I do what I love. I just do what I like. Uh, end of story. I I don't really. I used to compromise and think, oh, this will do. If I do this, it will sell more. Mm-hmm. I don't do this anymore. Right. It's like I've even got, gotten to a point recently. I thought about this um, a week ago that I Beatport has become a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. Um, this means that these days, everybody expects big hits, Beatport Top 10, Ex- big tracks, track after track. I don't, as much as I, obviously as Tronic, I still need Beatport, it's very important for the income, and I, I like what they do. I don't like that promoters or other DJs look too much at Beatport and, and play their sets accordingly. Because if you do that, you just end up playing big track after big track after big track, and techno is not like that. Right. I think if you play a good techno set, you play a lot of tools. And you, you create a vibe by playing tracks that nobody knows. And of course, once in a while, it's, it's, it's good to play a big track too. Yeah. But um, if you play one big techno track after another big techno track, it's not very different from being an EDM DJ. Right. I feel like some of the most uh, you know rewarding sets that I've, I've watched are when the DJ has like an ebb and flow, there's an energy that they bring up for a period of time. And then they almost kind of give the audience a bit of a break, almost like, go, go get a drink, come back. I'm still going to be here. And then sort of building that tension up again. Um, do you feel like that type of audience is different maybe in Europe versus the U S do you cater your music differently that way? Or is it just, I'm going to play this and hope that no, no, uh, I, I adjust to the crowds yeah. and, and, and to the places where I am. But for example, one thing, one artist that I love, uh, one DJ that I've always liked is Jeff Mills, because he creates a vibe out of just playing tools, right. just very minimal tracks, and he creates energy by playing tracks. Like he said in, in, in an interview recently, I became a DJ because um, back in the days when te- when when tech, techno, when he started te- playing techno, it was expected to not do what the audience wants. 
<laughs> and you know, and also like I, I find my best gigs are the ones where, where the audience expects me to play music that they don't know. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because because that is one big problem I find right now with the scene. People want to hear what they know, and and that's not really underground. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so let's think about this for a second. We're 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 opening up the door to your studio. What do we see? Like, what what kind of setup do you have? Right now, uh, to be totally honest, I don't have a studio at all. Okay. Because I just uh, I just bought a uh, bought an apartment and I'm in the process of moving. Okay. And um, so yeah, but let's say to it's make it long story short, yeah. I have a very very simple setup. Okay. Uh, it's the same place where I do my radio show every week. It's it's just computer and a couple of synths. Nothing fancy at all. Most of the stuff is done inside the inside the box, mm-hmm. and um, and these days you can do everything inside the computer. I think the most important thing is to have a, a good set of ears and knowing when something sounds good and is good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's so many people that have ginormous, huge studios with all analog compression and blah blah blah, but that doesn't mean that um, it makes you a better producer. Right. You know, uh, Eric Prids has done some of his biggest tracks uh, while sitting on the bus on his laptop. Yeah. There, I know we've spoken to a lot of other producers in the past, and they sometimes do their work, I mean, on the road. They come up with some of their greatest, like, yeah. ideas. Like uh, Pig and Dan, for example, they mix every... All of their music, they mix on headphones. Right. So they do it inside the laptop, mix it on headphones. The guy, they don't even have uh, studio monitors. Interesting. Yeah, it's just, it just goes to show that if you know what you're doing, you know, and you're resourceful, you know, the options are endless. Yeah. I think I read something in one of your past interviews as sort of a piece of advice for new artists. And, and you tell them, you know, especially when they're submitting to your label, um, know how to mix and know how to master. Um, so sometimes I, I feel like I get the question where it's, I'm at the point of finishing my song. Do I need to really master it myself or should I send it to an engineer who's experienced and, and what parts should I know as a producer to really give me a foundation? I think I think what you should do as, as an up-and-coming producer is you should show your tracks to your friends that are also producers or DJs and, and ask them, hey, do you think is the quality is good enough to send it to this or that label? Mm-hmm. Because often if I get sent music and it doesn't sound good, I, I, I kind of just like move on to the right. next demo. I, yeah. I don't waste much time. If it doesn't sound right, I move on. Right. You know, obviously sometimes I get a track that I really like, but it's mixed kind of poorly. Mm-hmm. Then I, sometimes I, I go back to the to the uh, to the producer and tell him, "Hey, please try to mix it down better and, and this and that to give some advice." But I am very busy. I get sent around two hundred demos a week, so it's really I don't have enough time to to give everybody feedback. Sure. You know? So Absolutely. I end up giving more feedback to the artists that regularly release on the label and. Um, yeah, do it like that. Fair enough. And I'm sure, you know, there are times where an artist maybe gets in, in a creative rut. Have you come and come across those moments? And, and what do you do to get out of that headspace for you to really move on? Who hasn't been in this situation? Right. I mean, that's right. like, that goes without saying, you know, sometimes you work in the studio and you're like, nothing is happening. Nothing is like you're working on a track and it's like, yeah, it's okay, but it's not inspiring. And then suddenly, from one minute to another, it might just be one little change in the bass line or the melody. You're like, whoa, this is amazing. So it, it, things can turn around really quickly. And one advice I always tell everybody is always finish your tracks. Mm-hmm. Because a, a lot of the up-and-coming promo- uh, producers, they have like 50 or 100 unfinished tracks. You know, an unfinished. If you have fifty unfinished tracks, 
versus one finished track, one finished track is more. Right. So, and also, once you finish a track, you can go to the next track. And you gradually improve during that. Mm-hmm. If you just have 50 unfinished projects, you're confused and you don't know where you're at. Right. You know, so I, I really found, uh, found out myself uh, producing that I became a better producer time after time after time. And um, now when I work in the studio, I work fairly quickly and I do a, a track, yeah, in a, one day, in one session, normally one track is done. And then that's pretty much like all the written parts mixed down, maybe a little bit. Everything. Wow. It, and then what I do is I play them out and see if anything needs to be adjusted. Mm-hmm. That's the luxury of being a DJ. Right. So I can play them out and see, oh, yeah, maybe the kick drum needs to be stronger or, you know, maybe the hi-hats needs, need more frequencies, you know. So... Yeah, I do that, and then I mix it down again, and then and then I get it mastered. Got it. So, do you work with a specific engineer that you've built trust over time with, and 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 they sort of you guys know each other, or do you use uh, different... absolutely? Yeah, yeah okay. this is very important. I mean, I have one engineer that does everything for myself, any production that I'm attached with, because he knows what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows that I want the tracks to be warm, but also pushed quite hard. Mm-hmm. And um, it's techno after all, you know. It's um, it's not uh, you know smooth jazz music, okay. so it's 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 meant to be on the dance floor and yeah. uh, have a proper impact. <laughs> right. So so I have one guy and he knows exactly what I want, you know. He, he, and he nine out of ten times he, he he nails it. Got it. So you mentioned before. I mean, as is obvious, you know, you run a really successful label. You get a lot of demos. You know, how do you balance that time where you're working on your label with your family? I know there's a lot of other artists. I have I have one um, label manager that works for me full time. Yeah. I'm super grateful for her because she is, she's without her, um, I would be lost. <laughs> because she she does all the scheduling. She does uh, she coordinates all the artwork. And um, she even, I, we came up with a, with a way of collecting all the demos. Mm-hmm. So now once a week, she sends me a Dropbox folder full with demos and I go through them, boom. I go through all of them. That's much better than one DJ sending me a demo here, another artist sending me a demo here. Then things get lost and I don't, and, end, and I end up, I ended up listening to maybe only five or 10% of all the demos I got sent, but now I listen to all of them. And it's, it's a very good system. It's time consuming. Sure. But um, she helps me out a lot, and and in that way I can cut my the time that I spend on running the label. The most important thing that I find for myself is that I am still involved with the label, and I make all the musical choices. Because mm. if I stop doing that, then the label loses identity. Yeah, I've seen it over and over where people who started a successful label uh, had other people take over the music mm. um, decisions, and then things just fell apart. Not always, but often, especially now in this house and techno world where um, we all have our own brands and you get known for a certain style of music. Makes sense, makes sense. Um, we're almost done here, so I have just a few more questions. Um, do you have any new music or new artists that you want to kind of put a spotlight on? Yeah, I I, I, um, I really support Drunken Kong. Drunken Kong are from Tokyo, Japan, and uh, really talented producers, really nice people. Super good DJs. So, so I, um, I hope they're going to start coming more to North America. They played a few times in Canada. So they're getting their the O1 visa right now, which is an artist visa that everybody, every non-American needs to get in order to work in America. It's pain in the, pain in the ass to get this visa. And it costs like, I think, $3,000 now. So it's very expensive. But um, once you have that, you can, you can work in America for, for three years. So once they have that, I hope they're going to play more in the States. Um, Drunken Kong I like a lot. 
Oh, there's many, many people I really like. There's another new up-and-coming guy called Luca Gaeta. He's from Italy. I really like his stuff, too. And um, uh, Tupol from Germany. Really like their stuff. I think they're going to have a good future ahead. Yeah, it's just, I, I, I try to support a lot of the new people. But at the same time, I also support the old people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's, it's, of course, it's good and necessary to support the new generation. But that doesn't mean you should forget about the old ones. You know, like I have some older guys, not older guys, I mean, people that were legends in the, in the 90s releasing music on Tronic Now. Um, I just had a release out by Oliver Lieb, who, who did loads of anthems in the 90s. Uh, Jamal Moore, who was a part of Jam and Spoon. You know, so uh, Joey Beltram, which is like a legendary techno yeah. producer from, from New York. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's important to, to have a, a healthy balance, I feel. And uh, this is, yeah. And also, I also try to be very international. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have an artist from around 20 countries, wow. Rudy Centronic. And I'm very proud of that because we live in a, such a global world. It's, it needs to be done. So, That's awesome. yeah. All right. So you've just come back from a long trip. You land, you get home. What's the first thing you want to do with your family? The first thing I want to do is I take a shower. Yeah, <laughs> so so I definitely take a shower and then yeah, just hang out with my with my with my wife, with my kids. Uh, you know, I live in Mallorca, so I have the luxury to go to the beach mm-hmm. and um, you know eat some good food. You know, I'm just a normal person like 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 anybody else. You know, I, I you know I, I really enjoy being with my family, barbecue, you know, drinking wine, normal things. Awesome. Well, Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you can catch Christian Smith in Minnesota and an upcoming tour in Santa Fe. Um, and off- obviously, you can catch him on Beatport, Spotify, SoundCloud, Tronics' label. We're big fans. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for having me.